Little Red Riding Hood is an excellent example of innocence lost and a tale that's been retold since the 10th century. We're all aware of the more popular grim story of the young girl and her grandmother who get eaten up by the big bad wolf, but are later rescued by the huntsman. Then they put stones in the wolf's belly and he dies. The world forever rid of the terrible beast. But what if the huntsman never saved the girl and her grandmother? What if they died? Not so happily ever after, huh? In Charles Perrault's earlier version of the tale, published in 1697, the girl crawls in bed with the wolf. He then throws himself on her and gobbles her up. Beyond the obvious sexual innuendo, the wolf wins. Evil prevails, and readers are left jaw open and, as Perrault intended, girls' minds are racing with dark images associated with the dangers of being alone with a man. In another version, the girl offers the wolf her fine silk clothing, her silver shoes, and even a golden crown. But he rejects them all, only wanting to devour her. She narrowly escapes him by climbing up an oak tree. The wolf then begins to dig up the tree by its roots. All the while, the girl is screaming for her beloved to rescue her. But when he finally arrives, all he finds is her bloody arm. It's not hard to imagine people in dark corners of taverns on foggy nights, sitting around and recounting their personal twist on this story. Maybe then a lady breaks in, interrupting the men's fantasy with her own version of the tale, in which the girl danced for the wolf, luring his affections, then excused herself to the restroom where she escapes, which follows a trickster archetype by exposing the girl's dawning consciousness of her own power and how to use it for survival. Of all the fairy tales, this story lends itself to a dark and complex exploration that folklorists have been picking apart for years. Let's step into an altogether different version, shall we? Imagine a girl, no, a young woman, wearing a red cloak in a dark, dark wood. Into the darkest night She walked without fright The wolves lurked for prey She still felt as brave as day But they weren't the only one Deep in the woods searching for blood Winter isn't a season It's a state of mind, a mood that comes as quickly and unexpectedly as the first snow. It often comes at night, at a sunny day's end, when the moon is full and hangs threateningly in the sky, like a giant watching eye, 
a witness to all that slithers in the darkness. Faye understands this mind state. She's the one who first recognized it in me and warned that there would come a time when the mood would take action, and when that time came, I was to go to her. She'd know what to do. I didn't leave a note or tell anyone I'd left because I knew they'd come looking, and I didn't want that. I couldn't bear to tell them what happened, not yet, not until I'd had a chance to speak with my grandmother. Having left without much time to plan, I'd only packed two things in my basket, a bottle of aged wine and a fresh loaf of bread. Clasping my cloak with my free hand, shivers ran through my body. My dry fingers, turning ghostly white, clutched the basket. An owl called in the distance, bringing me to the awareness that I wasn't the only creature in these woods. I pulled the hood over my head and continued to travel deeper and deeper still into the dark forest. Wind wrapped around me and howled through the trees. The moon's light gleamed through the dense fog. I felt the eyes of something or someone on me. I turned to look, but nothing. Just empty black spaces between the towering branches. Is anyone there? I asked after hearing leaves beneath feet. I walked faster, wind chapping my lips and cheeks, rustling, crunching closer and closer. The night had stolen my sight. I ran, knowing that Faye's house wasn't much farther. A root with gnarly fingers wrapped itself around my boot and tripped me. My knees slammed into the wet earth, sending a sharp pain shooting up my legs. The palms of my hands burned as I tried to force myself up, only to see him. My heart raced, thump-thumping in my ears. Allow me, he said, extending his hand. His dark hair hung in his face. His bright green eyes looked unreal, too green. The pupils too wide. I'm fine, I said and stood to my feet, dusting the dirt from my knees and hands. Well, at least allow me to escort you to wherever it is you're going he said, his deep voice not matching his soft features. I shrugged, not seeing the harm. He smiled self-consciously. I always liked it when men did that, like they were shy and not predators at all. All right, I'm heading this way, I told him, pointing north through the wood. My grandmother Faye lives just a little farther that way. He followed as I pushed onward. So what brings you out here at night? alone, he finally asked after a few minutes of silence. I told you I'm going to see my grandmother. Well, yeah, but I figured it must have been important since it couldn't wait until tomorrow. Maybe, but where's the fun in that? I turned and smiled at him. He grinned, revealing his beautiful wide teeth. When my gaze fell on him a moment too long, he brought his full lips together and looked away. Bashful. A bona fide gentleman, huh? I'm Jack, by the way. His steps fell in sync with mine. Poppy. I tugged my cloak again, the cold starting to slither its way into my bones. Nice to finally meet you, he said, taking a larger stride to be closer to my side. You too, 
I answered, but then realized, finally? I mean, I've seen you around the village. You're always with your mother and sister, I presume? Yeah, my parents don't like to let us out of their sight. I can understand why. There's a lot of darkness in this world, he said, eyes focused on the path ahead. Do you really think so? I asked curiously. What, and you don't? He pushed his hair back and met my gaze, his brows furrowed, forming a confused expression. I believe in evil. Sure, who doesn't? But do you really think that there is a disproportionate amount of it in the world compared to good? Crunching leaves beneath our boots, a steady backdrop to our conversation. I guess I never really thought about it like that before. I suppose when you put it that way, there are a lot of good people. I'm meeting more and more of them every day. His smile almost warmed me. The slight pinking of his cheeks and the fullness of his mouth made me wonder which creature he was, good or bad. Perhaps he was a bit of both, like most of us. Faye's tiny cottage emerged in the distance. I expected to see light flickering behind the wavy window panes, but instead there was nothing but darkness, as if no one were home, or worse. That's strange. She has to be home, I told Jack, a nervous pang biting at my heart. I hope everything's all right. Of course it is, I said a little too sternly, not wanting to let the idea that something may be wrong take root in my mind. It has to be, I softened. Right, of course. Smoke didn't billow from the chimney, and the wood pile my father prepared for her a month ago looked almost untouched. With the amount of wind and cold we'd had the past few days, I couldn't imagine how anyone could survive without some sort of heat. As we approached the doorstep, I turned to thank Jack for his company, but before I could say anything, he spoke. If it's okay with you, I'd like to stay until I know everything is all right with Miss Fay. I nodded and wiggled the old doorknob until it gave in. Grandmother, it's Poppy. Are you home? I asked, words echoing through the dark house. Another nervous twinge surged through me. I needed her. Please be okay, I whispered under my breath. An empty glass of something sat on the dusty table beside the fireplace, and a wool blanket hung over her favorite red plaid-striped chair. Faye, I called out again. Silence felt as cold as the outside. My foggy breath hovered in front of me as I spoke. In here, I heard a faint voice say. I pushed back the heavy curtains that separated her bed from the living space. There you are, I've been worried sick. Faye laid in the bed under four thick quilts, her skin looking pale and her lips turning purple. What's the matter? I asked, pushing my palm to her forehead. Warmth radiated from her withering body. I've been sick for a few days. I can't seem to get over it, she said, snuggling herself deeper into the blankets. We'll get you well, you hear? Remembering Jack, I left her only to tell him that she's all right and that I've got it from here. He nodded, his dark hair falling into his eyes. I swayed, wanting to tell him something. But what? I couldn't very well ask him to stay, and it wouldn't be appropriate to make plans to see a stranger again, especially one you know nothing about and met on a dark night in the woods, 
What would people say? Thanks again, I told him and took one step closer to him, feeling warm all of a sudden. Anytime, and please, do keep an eye on the shadows out here. There's no telling who or what's lurking around, looking. His voice trailed. Looking for what? Easy prey? I stilted a small laugh, surprised how protective he was being. I'm just saying. And so am I. I may look vulnerable, but I assure you, I am more than capable. Capable of what? He inched closer, placed a large hand on my chin, and tilted it slightly toward him. For a moment, I wondered if he'd kiss me. His hot breath lingered on my lips. Of whatever is necessary, I whispered. Let's hope so. His mouth curled into a grin as he pulled away. With a slight wave, he left, disappearing into one of those infamous shadows in the wood he'd spoken of. I stood alone, save the trees that swayed in the breeze. A chill washed over me, reaching its cold fingers around my limbs, an invisible squeeze that nearly took my breath away. This story and the one we're all familiar with both hinge on one truth. People aren't always who they appear to be. Poppy thought that Jack was someone bad in the forest. But later we learned that he seemed to be a decent guy, and Poppy herself may have been a little bit on the naughty side. We're the most vulnerable with people we trust. In this way, the story has a multi-cautionary element to it. One, be careful who you trust and how much you trust them. Two, things and people aren't always what they appear to be. Three, don't put yourself in dangerous situations, like being alone in a dark, dark wood. Charles Perrault concluded his version of the tale with this explanation of its moral. Quote, Children, especially attractive, well-bred young ladies, should never talk to strangers, for if they should do so, they may well provide dinner for a wolf. I say wolf, but there are various kinds of wolves. There are also those who are charming, quiet, polite, unassuming, complacent, and sweet, who pursue young women at home and in the streets. And unfortunately, it is these gentle wolves who are the most dangerous ones of all. End quote. Clearly, this was a warning of pedophilia. And there's no doubt that the story alludes to a young woman's coming of age and experience with men. But there's even more to be found between the lines. There are age-old archetypes used to hint to readers about danger, purity, and exploration. The forest in literature often symbolizes the unknown. Traveling away from the society of relationship and community and going against the communal wisdom and safety in numbers, Little Red Riding Hood is, in essence, going against the grain. In no way does she deserve her fate. In no way does she ask to become prey to the wolf. She is simply exploring. Storytellers throughout time have used the forest as the setting to creepy tales of innocence lost, like in Nathaniel Hawthorne's Young Goodman Brown, where a man travels through a forest as a sort of self-exploration of faith in person, 
only to find his wife being seduced by evil. But sometimes exploring is dangerous. And during the time of origin, women who lived alone in the woods lent themselves to much talk amongst the townspeople. Even talk of witchcraft, which could leave folklorists with an even different interpretation of the grandmother. Was she just an innocent victim after all? Or was there a bit of darkness in her as well? And then there's the color red. Many psychoanalytic critics believe the color red is symbolic of passion, blood, sin, and sexuality. Modern-day advertising has used these associations to create a sort of femme fatale character. In the Grimm's version, and in my own, Little Red is carrying a basket of bread and wine, which may be a representation of the Christian communion, possibly further implying that Old Granny may have needed to get right with God. Later in the story, the wolf eats Little Red. In most versions, Little Red doesn't make it out alive. But in the Grimm's version, a huntsman frees her from the beast's belly, and the girl comes out a new woman. She is now wiser and more aware of predators than she was at the beginning. A few things are very clear. The forest isn't safe. And never underestimate your company. You never know. They may be a wolf wearing sheep's clothing. Be sure to tune in to the next episode where we discuss an even darker element of the tale, the wolf. And we'll also finish the story, so stay tuned. Fabled is produced by me, Vanessa K. Eccles. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy my books. For more information, please visit fablecollective.com and follow us on social media at Fable Collective. I wanted to give a quick shout out to everyone listening Um, In other countries, we have a lot of listeners from Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, and wanted to say a special hello to our friends in the Netherlands and in Poland. It's such a neat thing that I can tell these stories and they reach people all over the world. As always, I'm so grateful that you're listening. See you next time.